Good morning, everyone. Uh, we come to the last in our series. We've seems to have been doing this forever, haven't we? Uh, Jesus is. We've looked at lots of things, and today I've got the uh, title, Jesus is your mum's thing. Yeah, there's a mum, and she's doing a thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you that we can look at your word and understand it. Uh, please help us to see what it means to be in a relationship with you, no matter where we stand in life, and how we might be ready for your coming again. Amen. Well, Jesus is your mum's thing. It's good news, isn't it? Isn't it great that mums can model uh, what a loving relationship with Jesus looks like to your family? I thank my mum for doing that and my dad. Uh, being brought up as a Christian was a wonderful start to life. I made a decision to follow Jesus for myself when I was about 14, but up till then I'd been nurtured in the scriptures by my mum, who not only sent me to Sunday school, but also went to church at the same time as well and modelled what it meant to be, to be a Christian. I always remember going into her room and finding her Bible open on the, uh, the side, uh, the uh, drawer next to her bed, um, as she would have read it at night. Remember Paul's friend Timothy? Uh, Paul speaks to him and says, look, you were nurtured by your grandmother and your mother and uh, you were encouraged to fan into flame the gifts that God has given you. So Paul encourages mothers to continue in that role. Mothers can be so influential in a child's first Christian steps and hopefully that child works his way in, or her way into a loving, dynamic Christian relationship and just doesn't see mum muttering a lifeless liturgy as she goes to bed at night, saying a few Our Fathers or Hail Marys. However, I think the comment, Jesus is your mum's thing, is far more cynical than that. I think it's really saying Christianity is old-fashioned. It's out of date. It's not in step with community norms. We've heard that recently, haven't we? It's just not cool or hip to be a Christian in the 21st century. What I'd like to do this morning is uh, have a look at who's actually saying this, why they're not in church, and what can we do about it. The group that's saying this we often call the millennials. That's what sociologists call them. Uh, those who are born between the years and the early 80s and the early 2000s, uh, sometimes they're called Generation Y. Uh, you may be one of them. I apologise for the rude things I'm going to say about you. But apparently, according to statistics, there aren't many of you here. Uh, I'll refer to you as we go on as millennials or young'uns. Uh, you grew up in an age which was increasingly familiar with communication and media and digital te technology, so that anyone from previous generations, especially from the baby boomers, uh, was already old-fashioned in these areas. Even uh, Gen X, the uh, generation after us, was intimidated by you because you knew so much. Uh, you were children often of parents who were divorced, whose relationships weren't working out, uh, where you had a sense of community that uh, was not found in the home. And so you looked for it elsewhere. Uh, work was not just a thing you did to earn money. Work now had to be meaningful. Well, I guess if you've gone through work and you've got a number of jobs under your belt, you know what I'm talking about. Um, you didn't go for work for 30 years and hated every minute of it and said that was a good thing. Uh, 
work had to be meaningful and it had to have a sense of community. You wanted to be there rather than just do it to get the money. There was also a sense of entitlement with this generation. Uh, anything that restricted your decisions or got in the way of your lifestyle, uh, like organised religion, was resisted. So if people said, you need to do this, you would say, no, I don't want to. Uh, millennials are also the product of uh, moral relativism. That is, um, there are no absolute truths anymore, no absolute morality. Uh, what uh, you say for you, well, that's great, but what I say for me, that's even better. Uh, what you believe and what I believe don't necessarily have to contradict. We just believe different truths about the same thing. Uh, there were no ethical norms binding people together. Your group was saying, um, uh, we don't believe that there is a, a, a thing that, that we uh, can uh, say, this is true for everyone. It really depended on the circumstances to say whether truth would fit. And you had a subjective preference to faith fames. So if you're a Buddhist, that's cool for you. If you're a person who followed Islam, that's great for you. If you're a Christian, that's good for you. But don't tell me how to live my life. Uh, this generation valued relationships. They found that was very important. But in valuing relationships, one of the problems was that they often threw away those basic fundamentals on how to build relationships, like commitment and loyalty and truth-speaking. They were encouraged at school and uni to ask questions, but didn't always like the answers. And having been a school teacher and having taught millennials for a long time, I remember when I used to stand up and give dogmatic answers, all the hands in the class went up. How can you say that? And you were labelled arrogant and intolerant. In fact, the new God tolerance was the one that dictated their beliefs. They said, because my truth is mine, you can't question my behaviour or my belief. They grew up with militant secularism and pop atheism, where religion was out of touch and they were told it was an evil and don't go near it. Engaging in religion was your mum's thing. Your dad probably worshipped at Bunnings if he was still around anyway. I was on holidays um, visiting my daughter last week or the week before and I found this in a shop in the north coast up at Yamba. Life is a great big canvas and you should throw all the paint you can on it. I think that's what it says, something like that. Uh, this is the millennial code, isn't it? This is what life's all about. It is a blank canvas on which you tell your own story, sometime in the form of physically doing it. You tattoo yourself to show this is your story and people can read your story. I often read people's story when I'm in the checkout behind them or in the gym. I wonder why they misspelt that word. <laughs> My story, they said, is very close to answering the question of who I am. What is life's meaning? It's all about my identity, myself, passing through time and space and the canvas being filled in. The problem with that is they still wanted to write their story to the very end. But you can't do that, can you? They didn't want anyone else to write their story at the end of their lives or something else to have a say. 
However, if death is the end of our story, it makes any attempt to write a meaningful script pointless. You only have to go to a young person's funeral to see friends fumble in their pain to make the story end well. They tell funny stories and imagine their friend looking down from the, from the stars, but the reality is it's just a full stop. That's the end. They didn't get to write the end of their story. Death did. Not only does death make a mockery of trying to make a person's story meaningful, so too does Jesus' second coming and the judgment that he brings with it. Christians believe that Jesus calls us to follow him, not just in life, but all the way to the cross. It means giving up telling our own story and instead letting it be told by Jesus. I want to show you a passage from Mark chapter 8 and we'll just have a look at this for a minute. Let me read it to you. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet to forfeit their soul? To deny yourself in this context is not giving up chocolate or fatty foods for a week, is it? It's much more than that. It's giving up the right to run your own life, something which the millennials did not like at all. It strikes at the very heart of all of our existence. The one thing we crave for and value and protect is that right to make ultimate decisions for ourselves. And here's Jesus saying, give it up. And more than that, he says, now take up your cross and follow me. In Jesus' day, carrying a cross was a one-way trip. You didn't come back from that. A person with the cross would be stripped bare for all to see, exposed, ridiculed, spat on, humbled and shamed. For the would-be follower of Jesus, it reduces them to the place where the only thing they can receive now is God's grace and the ability to follow or to obey Jesus now for Jesus to write the script in their lives. It means choosing to do what Jesus wants and looking for him for the power to now do it. Abraham did it. I don't know if he was a millennial when he heard God speak, but he did it. He heard God. He obeyed him. He went in search of a land without a map, trusting in the promises and power of God. Paul did it. He put it like this. I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race. There's no blank canvas here, is there? No splashing paint on this one. Paul wants to finish the race for Jesus and he knows what the end will be. Someone once said, I don't know who, if you find that you have everything you want by life's end, you will not want anything you have. To those who say, Jesus is my mum's thing, I'd say to you, if you haven't lost your life for Jesus, you'll never know what real and satisfying life is all about. You'll never know. You'll just be guessing and poking around in the dark. What's it worth to gain everything you want and yet lose your life in the process? 
And what happens when Jesus returns? Where will you stand then? You see, history isn't a blank canvas either. History is Jesus' story. He made the world. He came to live in it. He will return at the end of history and wind it all up. That's the great Christian hope. This world will not go on forever. Jesus will come again, this time not to suffer but to reign and to rule. And his coming will settle the future destiny of everyone, of all people. Matthew writes about it in chapters 24 and 25 of his gospel, and you might like to look that up because we're going to spend a little bit of time in Matthew 24. And I won't be putting it all on the, uh, the screen this morning. I'd like you, if you could, just to look up your Bibles. If we start in Matthew 24, and we'll just work our way through. When Matthew writes his account, uh, as Jesus speaks, Matthew doesn't want to speculate on the details about the millennium or the rapture or whatever. He's not interested in that sort of thing. He wants us to fix our eyes on the king who one day will come back to be crowned. And I think what we learn in this chapter are a number of things. So let's work our way through it. He tells us the return of Jesus, firstly, will be personal. We're not going to be confronted at the end of time by some alien being who has no knowledge of us. I find it always interesting in sci-fi movies that the alien beings we meet always know more than us. It's not like we know more than them. It's always someone who comes to us to give us knowledge, but they know nothing about us. But it's not going to be like that when Jesus comes back. Rather, we will meet someone who shared our existence and showed us what it meant to be truly human. Jesus also says that his his return will bring restoration. Have a look at chapter 24 and verses 6 to 8. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginnings of the birth pains. The Jews in the Old Testament had an expectation of the day of the Lord and that influences the language here in Matthew. Uh, These chapters speak of cosmic disasters in the universe. They speak of social disasters caused by earthquakes and famines and wars. They speak of moral disasters, of the growth of evil and the loss of love. If you go to verse 29, we read there, we see immediately after the distress of these days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. This new and wonderful hope that has dawned through the coming of Jesus is that when the Son of Man comes, he'll bring restoration and social and cosmic and personal and moral change. There will be a new creation. Evil will be dealt with and all will be good. Well, the return of Jesus is personal. It brings restoration, but it also brings judgment. Have a look at verse 40 and 41, if you would. 
Jesus goes on, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Some will be taken, some will be left. What has been hidden in our hearts will emerge in the clear light of day. And it won't be a matter of degrees of goodness, of whether we're better than somebody else, and whether we can run faster than the bear that's chasing us. No, it's not like that. It's about whether we'll run to Jesus with arms outstretched or whether we'll shrink and hide away in fear and hatred. The return of Jesus will bring that day of judgment. We'll either run or react to him. The return of Jesus too will be uh, decisive and unexpected. Now if we go back a little bit to verse uh, 36 and we'll read from there. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. There will be no more chances to repent when Jesus comes. Until then, business as usual. After that, the shops are shut. Like lightning flashing across the sky, the nature of existence will change forever. It will be unexpected and instant. And so what are we to do? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 42, Therefore keep watch. Because you do not know what day the Lord will come. We don't know when Jesus is going to return, but we need to keep watch. How do we do that? Well, it's not like we're looking for astronauts through a telescope up in space or a security guard looking at a a camera on a screen, but rather it's lovers who can't bear to spend time from each other and are waiting for that email or that sight or that glimpse of the one that they love. Jesus' story there in verse 43, I think it is, about the thief coming, tells us to be ready, to be expected for the unexpected. We don't know when we're going to be robbed, but Jesus says, it will happen. Expect it to happen. Expect me to come. How do you go about expecting? Well, the last parable we're going to look at is from verse 45 onwards, which was read for us. And Jesus described what it means to be someone who watches. Let's read it again. Verse 45, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time and then begins to beat his fellow servants to eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The master is looking for servants he can rely on, who will act 
in exactly the same way whether he's there or not there. They're not going to change. For some, the master's delay breeds bad behaviour and uh, the outcome is disastrous, as we see. For others, well, I think Paul has the last say on this. When he writes to Titus, he says these words. Let's go back to that. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Being watchful, Paul says, is going about our normal Christian business, saying no to the bad and trying to exceed in the good, saying no to that inordinate longing we have for power and pleasure and possessions, and saying yes to self-control and to honesty and integrity in dealing with others and being respectful and having a reverence for God as we wait the blessed hope, the appearing of Jesus himself. Someone told me that unless it's an Apple product, millennials aren't completely committed to anything. I'm not sure if that's true, but how do we ask them then to commit their lives to Jesus and not their own pursuits and to think beyond the grave, beyond death to Jesus coming and the judgment that awaits? Well, for those who do come through our doors, we need to engage them constantly, communicating what we're here for. We just don't come to church. We need, as Stuart does so well, put up in front of us the vision that we have for our church and a mission and empower people to participate in the life of our church. And because millennials focus so much on today and what it means to tell their story today, we need to disciple them in the values of planning for tomorrow. We need to help them to work out what to do with their money from a Christian perspective and how to move into marriage, what that means in having children and moving into middle and old age and to plan for it. Millennials so often have grown up with an online persona and cyberbullying and the generations below them are exactly the same. What an opportunity we have to teach this generation that a true identity is found in Christ is far better than a false identity created online. At the end of the day, those who say Christianity is my mum's thing are just people made in the image of God like the rest of us. They are in desperate need of a saviour too. Millennials crave relationship and people who will invest in their lives and future Real people who actually care. Is that you? Is that me? Are we in willing to invest in others so that Jesus will become their thing too? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you lead us all towards eternity.
We pray that eternity might be with you. We pray for those who do not know you, whether they are in any category in our church. We pray that they might come to the position where they put their full trust in you, take up their cross and follow you and do what you want rather than what they want. We pray if we're Christians as we continue to struggle in this Christian walk, help us to keep our eyes focused on you and the end result and your glorious kingdom and to keep on watching, to keep on praying and expect you to return soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Oh, questions. That's right. <laughs> Nearly got away with it. Anyone got any questions? Hmm. Does anyone have a question for Stu? Oh, Michelle, go. Okay. Oh, time's up. Not this one. Hello? Hello. We've got time. Um, this might not exactly be related to any of your sermon. Um, <laughs> I, just, I just came into this topic, Jesus is your mum's thing, thinking it was going to be coming at it from a different angle in that Jesus is your mum's thing because your mum taught you Jesus and that's why you believe in Jesus. So coming from that perspective of it's a, it's a cultural thing and mm. I was just asking Tim the other day and trying to wrestle with how do I know that we're not just indoctrinating our children? And I don't really know how to answer that question when somebody says you're just a Christian because your mum and dad taught you that. Hmm. Thanks for that comment. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't quite hear the question in that. Sorry. Uh, so the, the question is, uh, if, you, if you come with Jesus is more my mum's thing, yes. didn't your mum teach it to you? What do we say in response to the accusation, hey... Aren't you just a Christian because your mum taught you? So it's just indoctrination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What would you say about that? Well, I'd say with you, Michelle, did you come to a point in life where you owned it for yourself? You, I, th- I think that's the point you go to. You might say, well, I was, I was, I was very um, privileged to have my mum teach me that. And I know some people don't have that and they come to, to Christ, but they're behind the eight ball. If you come to Christ after many years and you don't have that knowledge behind you, you're always playing catch-up. I think it's a great privilege, but you, you've got to own it for yourself. Uh, and most of us do it when we're teenagers, I think, when our parents are Christians. Um, so we really need to pray for those who are out there teaching our teenagers at the moment. that mm. They might come to that realisation that Jesus is their thing too, not just their, their parents. Thanks for that. Anything else?